Good morning. It was about a year ago when I was prepping for another sermon that I came across some of the most disturbing pictures of my life. And at first, it was hard to tell because when you look at them, it's a group of young people, most likely in their 20s. And they are laughing and sitting on a fence and eating bowls of blueberries. And then there was another picture of some of them sleeping in lounge chairs on decks surrounded by trees. The pictures look like they could be taken at any summer camp here in California. And at first, they seem to share a sense of joy and laughter and youth. They speak to a sense of lightheartedness and frivolity that most of us can only long for from time to time. The problem is that these pictures were taken between May and December of 1944. And they show the officers and the guards of Auschwitz relaxing and enjoying themselves as countless people were being murdered and cremated in the nearby death camp. The album itself belonged to a man named Carl Hawker. He was the adjunct to the final camp commandant at Auschwitz. And he took the pictures as a personal keepsake. Prior to the liberation of Auschwitz, Hooker fled, and he slipped into a life of anonymity for quite a while, until 1963 when he was captured and brought to trial. In the closing words of his trial, this is what Hooker said. I had no possibility in any way to influence the events, and I neither wanted them to happen nor took part in them. I didn't harm anyone, and no one at Auschwitz died because of me. In Hooker's mind, he bore no responsibility for what happened to the people in that camp. He didn't pull the trigger. He didn't flip a switch. He just worked in an office and did paperwork. In the narrative of his life that he told, he was just a bystander. It got me thinking back to when I was a freshman in college taking Psych 101, and we studied what was called the bystander effect. It has become popularly known, and it's a psychological, a social psychological phenomenon where individuals are less likely to offer help to a victim or a person in trouble when there are other people present. It seems to go against what we would expect, that if we were surrounded by a large group of people, we would be safer, but it turns out that when a group is witnessing a wrong, it becomes incredibly tempting to diffuse personal responsibility and to believe that it should be someone else who steps up or steps in. They found we tend to keep silent, particularly when others don't act out of fear of going against the crowd and against the grain. We don't want to make a mistake, and so we stay silent. And it reminds me of the famous quote that all that it takes for evil to persist is for good men to do nothing. Our scripture today presents us with the same kind of case study. What will people do in the face of a great wrong? There is another famous saying that I once painted on the walls of my high school. Those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. And our story today starts there. 
with a new king that doesn't remember, doesn't remember the people of Israel and Joseph. This unnamed king has forgotten all of the good that the Israelites did for him and his people, and he begins to fear them. There are too many of them, these foreigners in our country, and they could harm us if we aren't careful, he says. They're, they're dangerous. And though there is no evidence historically or biblically that points to the idea that the Israelites would have sided against the Egyptians at this particular point, the king was not going to risk it. And so he begins to oppress them. He forces the Israelites into dangerous and grueling work, hoping to beat them down and to break their spirit. But rather than that happening, the people seem to flourish. And so the king's fear grows. It begins to spread from him out to the people in the homes and the cities, and they turn on the Israelites. Their neighbors and friends who had saved their country and their lives in the past, and they enslave them. They force them into their fields to pick their food and to do their manual labor. They beat them and they imprison them and they kill them. And even after all of this, they keep growing. And so finally, the king, so imprisoned by his fear and his paranoia, does the unthinkable. He calls the two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puha, to him, and he tells them they are to kill every single baby-born boy that is born to the Israelites. Never mind the logical idea that these would be the very boys that he would need to keep building his cities and picking his fields. At this point, the king is too far gone to think rationally. What would you do if you were one of these two women? What would you do knowing that your job and your livelihood, your very life, hangs in the balance of following this order of this king? What would you do? During VBS this year, one of the stories that we taught the children was about Joseph. How he came to Egypt, the way he and the other Israelites helped save Egypt in the face of a coming famine that would devastate and wipe out all of the surrounding nations and countries. And it's a beautiful story at the end of two peoples working together and living in a space of harmony. And we love these hero stories. We love them in VBS and we love them here, stories of Joseph and Moses. Because we like to picture ourselves as them, that scrappy, down-and-out underdog. We like to imagine ourselves as the hero who's overcome all odds and saved the girl or saved the day. We all identify with Shifra and Puha as the ones who would stand up in the face of evil because we all like a good fantasy. The truth is that we are more likely to suffer as bystanders than we are to stand up and do anything. And it's hard. It's really hard for us to shift our thinking and to imagine just maybe that we should put ourselves not in the shoes of the heroes, but of the villains. 
to imagine ourselves as Pharaoh and the other Egyptians. And yet the choices that we make, they often reflect we are far more like them than we would ever want to admit. And this isn't a lecture, it's a confession. It's my confession of how I live far too often. But part of following Christ, a large, the largest part of our discipleship is being brave enough to live out the great commandment to love others more than ourselves. The path we choose to follow, the path of Jesus, is not one of comfort and self-protection. It is the path of danger and persecution and self-sacrifice. I'm often struck by the words to the church of Laodicea in Revelation when I think about the American church and myself today. God turns to his church and he says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. After all, you say, I'm rich and I've grown wealthy and I do not need a thing. You do not realize you are miserable, pathetic, poor, blind, and naked. My advice to you is to buy gold from me that has been purified by fire so that you may be rich and white clothing to wear so that your nakedness won't be shamefully exposed and ointment to put on your eyes that you might see. I correct and discipline those that I love, so be earnest and change your hearts and your lives. Look, I am standing at the door knocking. We have become bystanders in the very world that we have been called to be the salt and the light to. But Puha and Shifra made a choice. These women, scripture tells us, respected and feared God more than they did the king. And so they outsmarted the king and they refused to do his bidding. And when this happened, the king changed direction. Instead, he tells the people, if they will not kill their own, we will do it for them. And he tells the people to kill all the boy babies they find. Can you imagine the terror? If you have had a child, if you have loved a child, if you have cared for a child ever in your life, can you imagine what it would be like to hear from the government that it is now legal to kill them? That anyone who finds him could take him from you? Can you imagine what should have been a time of joy and celebration being one of deep mourning and fear? This is the moment that Moses is born into. No gender reveals, no baby showers, no diaper cakes, just utter terror for his parents that at any moment he would be discovered and taken from them and killed. We're told that Moses' parents come from the house of Levi. This is the tribe that will be called to become the priests of God, to serve in his temple at his altar, the blessed ones. And this is what they begin with. 
you know what comes next. You've seen the Ten Commandments on TV just like I have. The child is put in a basket and he's sent down the river where he is rescued by Pharaoh's own daughter. His older sister and mother come and they are tasked with helping to raise him. And in an irony that only God can ordain, the very enemy the king was trying to kill is made family and brought into his house. And we often overlook the courage of Pharaoh's daughter in this moment because we are told that she knows that this baby is one of the Hebrews. She knows he's supposed to be dead. And being the daughter of a king is no particular promise of protection. She is a woman and she is expendable in this time. She had everything to lose and nothing to gain by saving this child. She could have walked away and no one would have ever known. And we all face moments like this in our life when we have to make a choice, when we know what is right, and we have to decide if we're going to do it or take the easy way out. I recently read a story about Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha. She's from Michigan. She was one of the first pediatricians to begin to raise alarm about the water in Flint. And as she began to try to get people's attention to say something is wrong, there are kids who are dying, the politicians and the people in power began to rip her apart, tear her credibility and her reputation to shreds, and still she persisted. Maybe you've watched the movie Concussion and you know the story about Dr. Bennett Amalahu. The doctor who began to discover signs of some kind of brain disorder in the bodies of former NFL players who began to try to tell people there is a problem here. People are getting sick. They're hurting themselves. And for it, he lost his job. He had his reputation smeared, bricks thrown in his window. People called his house and threatened his family. And still he persisted. Many of you may or may not know that I am a huge Murder, She Wrote fan. Yeah. But I was watching an episode recently. And in this episode, the main character, Jessica Fletcher, is having her house worked on. And she has a contractor who's been a friend that she's known for a while, but he keeps pushing back her work later and later. And it turns out that well, there's another client who has a lot more money and a lot more power. And he came to her apologizing for failing to honor his word, and he explains it to her by telling her, look, look at the current economy. I've got to do what I've got to do to get by. I've got to take care of me and my family. I'm between a rock and a hard place, don't you understand? One of the other characters standing next to her turns and says, I remember when people used to choose the hard place. And the sentiment has stuck with me lately. What does it mean to choose the hard place? Because I think much of our Christian walk is about choosing the hard place. The good Samaritan who's on his way, on his journey, who stops and helps the man. The disciples who give up their bread to the hungry and who go out with no purse, just their shoes and a staff, the woman who shares what's left of her valuable perfume on a man headed to a cross, the widow that puts what she has left in the collection box, the early church that literally risks life and limb to share the good news, Paul who gives up all his power and position 
to follow this man, Jesus. Jesus, who chooses crucifixion and death. None of these are the easy way. And it can be so hard in our postmodern world to determine what is right and wrong. We have so many influences and inputs coming at us all the time. In a world of 24-hour news cycles and blogs that make everyone an expert into anything that they so wish to be, truth and facts have become subjective. And it is easier, so much easier sometimes to just step back and to be a bystander. To let other people do the work or to take the risk or to step out. Because the alternative is so hard. It is hard to intensely study and be shaped by scripture. So much so that when the moments arise in our life, we can know the truth and act on it. It is far easier to be the unnamed king and to react out of fear and ignorance instead. It is hard. It is so hard to respect God so much that we are willing to risk ourselves to follow his commands of love and self-sacrifice. It is far easier to be like the Egyptian people, never questioning, never risking, looking out only for our own welfare. But in scripture we are told there is truth with a capital T. And that truth is Jesus. And when we are searching for what to do or how to respond to situations that arise in our world, we would be wise to ask ourselves the age-old question that we too often mock anymore, what would Jesus do? Jesus, who tells us that he is the way and he is the truth, the one who laid down his life for the undeserving, who fed the hungry and gave water to the thirsty and healed the sick. Jesus was never a bystander on this earth, and we should not be either. We're called to be a people who open our hearts and our minds that we might hear and heed the wisdom and commands of God so that like the Hebrew midwives, like Moses, like Pharaoh's daughter, we might not be lukewarm when the moment comes, but that we might act in a manner consistent with the very heart of God. Amen.